Jeremiah 11. Actually, you'll notice from the outline that we're going to lap over into chapter 12. I'll attempt to give you a justification for that. Um, It may appear somewhat awkward, but the structure uh, as we examine it, I think, will justify that at least to uh, my satisfaction. Uh, Whether you're persuaded, that's another matter. These uh, structural suggestions are that. They're suggestions. It's what I think is happening uh, with the text and how it's uh, breaking itself down into units. And I believe there are three units in this uh, section of what I've labeled the plot against Jeremiah's life. Uh, This is one of the first dramatic uh, uh, crises in uh, Jeremiah's career. Namely, he's faced with a death plot. They actually want to kill him. And as we'll learn, uh, it's members of his own family that want to kill him. So uh, this is an important chapter in terms of the career of the prophet. And one of the ways this narrative unfolds is by way of rolling dialogue. And that's the reason I've broken it down into those headers or categories of the person speaking and the person addressed, or the person who is being spoken to. In most cases, you'll notice that it is God speaking to Jeremiah. However, there are instances in which Jeremiah addresses God in response, or Jeremiah spontaneously appeals to God. You'll notice also that at the beginning, in verses 1 to 2 and verse 5, God speaks to Jeremiah initially, and then in verse 5, Jeremiah responds to God. Now, if you cast your eye down to the bottom of that left column, you'll notice in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, God speaks to Jeremiah, which balances or is parallel to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. And interestingly, in chapter 12, verse 1, Jeremiah speaks to God, which is parallel to chapter 11, verse 5. Now, this is one of the reasons why I believe that we go through chapter 11 to chapter 12, verse 6, for this narrative paradigm. And if you're uh, alert there, you'll notice what we have is a a chiastic pattern. In other words, God, Jeremiah at the top, Jeremiah, God at the top, at the bottom, Jeremiah, God, and then God, Jeremiah. It's an A, B, B prime, A prime chiastic paradigm. There's therefore a symmetry. There's a symmetry of balance and parallelism at the beginning of this unit, which is a dialogue between God and Jeremiah, and at the end of this unit, which is also a dialogue between God and Jeremiah. And it is for that reason that I think... Most of the commentators who agree that we close this unit of chapter 11 and the plot in chapter 12, verse 6, I think they're right, but I think they're right for a reason that they haven't observed. <clears throat> so, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm smarter than they are, but I, I'm interested in this little chiastic pattern of the dialogue between God and Jeremiah being reversed and then reversed again. <clears throat> 
Now, <clears throat> the point of these conversations goes back to our narrative paradigm that arises from the call of Jeremiah back in chapter 1. Namely, God is going to conform Jeremiah to himself as his very word, his living word, his word of fire, his word that's going to burn within Jeremiah. It's as if God is incarnating himself in his word in Jeremiah. So there's this very intimate reciprocal relationship between God and Jeremiah. And that's the reason they have these dialogues. That's the reason they have these rolling conversations. There's a very close intimacy between the Lord and his servant prophet and vice versa. There's a very close intimacy between the servant prophet and his Lord. Consequently, these dialogues are actually narrative devices. We're learning something about the story of Jeremiah as we roll along in these exchanges. All right, now, the first unit of these dialogues extends down to verse 8. So verses 1 to 8 are the first unit of this section. The second unit is verses 9 to 17, which leaves verses 18 of chapter 11 through chapter 6, verse 6 of chapter 12 as the third unit. So I'm suggesting that there are three dialogic narrative units in this pericope, in this whole section of 11, 1 to 12, 6. Now, how do I justify that? You'll notice on the right-hand side of your outline, you have in verse 2 a reference to location, to Judah, the nation, and Jerusalem, the capital of the nation. Following that, you have a reference to the Exodus in verse 4, out of Egypt and God's mandate or God's command to listen to him. That uh, reference to the exodus from Egypt and the mandate or the imperative to listen to God is repeated in verse 7. So what we have is a locational reference as a kind of header to an appeal of retrospect or reference back to the exodus from Egypt with an imperative command from God to heed or listen to him. Listen to him about what? If you'll notice verse 2, you will see the word covenant, which is repeated in verse 3, and repeated again in verse 6, and repeated again in verse 8. It is appropriate to refer to the covenant in this context in which God is talking about having brought them out of Egypt or up from Egypt. The exodus from Egypt sets the stage for the covenant at Mount Sinai. And therefore, in this section, verses 1 to 8, you have this vocabulary of exodus plus covenant. The reason for that language is because God is charging Israel was sin against that covenant, as we will see when we begin to look at the verses in detail. However, this unit is unique, as it has its own integrity. These phrases occur here. 
that is, out of Egypt, and listen to me, does not occur anywhere else in this unit, that is, from 11.1 to 12.6. And the covenant is emphasized here in this section in relationship to that exodus from Egypt. And so I think that this part of the exchange between God and Jeremiah is specifically focusing on the violation of the covenant at Sinai after God brought Israel out of Egypt, a violation which has continued down through the history of Judah, even to the days of Jeremiah in the 7th and 6th century B.C. Well, in verse 9, you will notice that that same location, Judah and Jerusalem, the nation and the capital, is repeated. But this time it stands at the head of a section which uses national identity in parallel uh, uh, symmetry. House of Israel and house of Judah occurs in verse 10. And that same phrase, house of Israel, house of Judah, occurs again in verse 17. Well, the covenant is not as prominent in this section But something else is. And you'll notice in verse 10, where that first mention of the house of Israel and house of Judah occurs, you'll notice the word gods. And in verse 17, you'll notice the word Baal. Now, the charge that is being discussed in this dialogue between God and Jeremiah, also God and the people of Judah is a dialogue which involves the besetting sin of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Whether it was the northern kingdom or whether it was the southern kingdom, it was the besetting sin of worshiping other gods, namely idolatry in verse 10, and specifically the god of the Canaanites, Baal, verse 17. All right, the first unit focusing upon the violation of the Exodus liberation, particularly the breaking of the covenant at Sinai, verses 1 to 8. The second unit, verses 9 to 17, focusing on the national sin of idolatry, particularly the sin of serving Baal and other gods. That leaves verses 18 through chapter 12, verse 6. And this unit hinges on the significance of the third-person personal pronoun, there, they, and them. Here, we have a dialogue between Jeremiah and God in verse 18. If you look at your text in the Bible, where the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it, then thou didst show me their deeds. Now, the issue here is who is the antecedent of there? Is it the Exodus generation? No. Is it those who are worshiping the Baals? Not necessarily. Who then is the there that he's talking about? Well, in verse 20, he goes on to talk about them again, only here he uses a different pronoun, Um, I'm sorry, verse 19, uh, let's start with that one. Um, I did not know that they had devised plots against me. Now we get a little more of a clue here, namely that uh, somebody 
the they has devised a plot against Jeremiah. So we're working our way forward in this, shall we say, little mystery as to who the identity of the there and the they are. And in verse 20, he refers to them as them. Let me see thy vengeance on them. And we still hasn't told us who they are. We don't know who the there, they, them are. Well, in verse 21a, God identifies them. God speaks concerning, uh, that's what that little uh, Latin uh, word re means, about or concerning. God uh, speaks concerning or re the men of Anathoth. So now we know who they are. Now we know who the plotters are. They are the men of Anathoth. Now what's the significance of Anathoth? Marge, what's the significance of Anathoth? I'm trying to think back to your very first lecture where... Good for you. um, It was somebody who was supposed to be killed but was pardoned and sent there... You don't need to go that far back for for its significance here. Terry, can you help her out? That's Jeremiah's hometown, though that's where his family was. All right, so who are the plotters? His own family. The men of Anathoth are the men of his own family. As uh, you will uh, notice... Um, uh, in verse 6 of chapter 12. Here we have the definitive explanation of who the they are in chapter 11, 18 and following. Your brothers, the household of your father, these are the ones that have dealt treacherously with you. All right, so in verse 21a, in the blank on your outline, you can write in men of Anathoth if you would like. That's the, uh, that's the phrase that fills in the blank. In 21b, they speak. Notice. Notice that this is well, the, uh, the place in this rolling diagram paradigm where somebody beside God speaks with Jeremiah. Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord that you might not die at our hand. Who is speaking? These are the men of Anathoth who are speaking to Jeremiah. These are his brothers and his family speaking to him, saying, Stop it. Shut up. We're going to kill you. So you can fill in on the left-hand side, person speaking, men of Anathoth, and the person addressed is Jeremiah in 21b, so that God speaks to Jeremiah about, notice, the men of Anathoth in verse 23, so you can fill in that blank, and you have a little parallelism between 21 and 23, where the men of Anathoth appears in symmetrical balance. All right, now, there's one other thing to notice about this last unit. 
It is a sandwich device in its own right. You will notice that in 18, Jeremiah speaks to God. You will notice in verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, Jeremiah speaks to God. Also in verse 20, Jeremiah speaks to God. Now, in the first section, from 18 to 20, we don't know who the they are. In verses well, 1 to 6 of chapter 12, we know who the they are, but they're not labeled. They're not identified specifically. However, in verses 21 to 23, we do know who they are, and they are specifically labeled, the men of Anathoth. So we have two sections here in which we just have the you know, generic pronoun, third person, personal, they, their, or them. And that is in 18 to 20 and also in 12, 1 to 6. In between, we have the they identified. Verses 21a to 23, God tells us who these plotters are. They are the men of uh, Jeremiah's own boyhood home his own uh, native uh, location, his friends, as well as his family members, they are plotting uh, to kill him, that he may die at their hand. All right, the sandwich then sets apart three sections in this last unit, 18 to 20, 21 to 23, and 12, 1 to 6. There's another relationship in that uh, in that section. I want you to notice uh, the phrase in verse 19. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Does that language ring a bell in your memory? Ben, you're nodding your head a little bit. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Referring to whom? The Lord Jesus. Yes, ultimately the Lord Jesus. How do you know that? The New Testament. What, what story in the New Testament particularly that you know specifically that Isaiah 53 is referring to Jesus? Anyone? Ben is right. It refers to Christ. And, of course, you all know this because you you uh, meditate on it sometimes before you come to communion. You prepare yourself for the communion table by reading through Isaiah 53 and thinking about its beautiful imagery. Scott? Ethiopian eunuch. Yes, it's the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 when he is reading uh, the book of Isaiah in his chariot. And Philip comes to him and he asks, you know, what am I who is this person? And he's not called Jesus in the text. What's he called in the text? What's he called in Isaiah 53? We know he's referring to Jesus, but what's he called in Isaiah 53? Who is it? Who is it in Isaiah 53? Do you know, Kay? No, I should, but I don't. All right. Well, refers to the lamb. Yes, but he says, I, he, says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Who's the he? It doesn't say Jesus. It doesn't say the Messiah. Who's the he? Terry, who's the he? Isaiah 53 is one of the famous what, Scott? Servant songs. Servant, songs. servant what, what, what servant? 
the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Yes. There are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is the most important and the most complete of them. So it's the servant of the Lord who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. Acts chapter 8 tells us that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is, in fact, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the crucified and risen Savior. Understand that you believe that because Acts tells you that what you believe is right. But no liberal believes that. No liberal believes that Acts, Isaiah 53 refers to Jesus. No liberal believes that Philip is interpreting correctly. Philip is interpreting on the basis of the Christian community in the New Testament era trying to make Isaiah 53 fit Jesus' career. But Isaiah never knew that, never projected that, never intended that. Your, your mouths are gaping a little bit. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't realize how bad it is out there, do you? <laughs> No modern critical commentary, with the exception of some conservatives, will ever tell you that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus of Nazareth. It is not. It is talking about anybody else but Jesus of Nazareth. One thing you know for sure, if you're a liberal talking about Isaiah 53, it is not talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You may not know for sure what it is, but you know what it isn't. That's the liberals' way of building up the church and understanding the scriptures and allowing scripture to interpret itself. (laughs) Wonderful stuff, isn't it? (laughs) And they wonder why their churches are emptying out. All right. (laughs) Okay. Now, my point here is that we have a veiled reference, if not an explicit reference, in verse 19, where Jeremiah uses a phrase which is taken almost verbatim from Isaiah 53, verse 7. Which has led some liberals to say that the servant of the Lord is Jeremiah. Yeah. That's who it is. It's Jeremiah. See, look, he uses the same phrase. It's not anything to do with Jesus. It's Jeremiah. Well, yes, go ahead, Kay. When Jesus was baptized, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. True. Does that mean anything? No, it doesn't, because that's purely the suggestion of a sacrificial image. It doesn't necessarily mean Isaiah 53. The liberal is the real fundamentalist. What John the Baptist would have had to say was, Behold the Lamb of God who is led like a lamb to the slaughter. If that's what it was going to mean. See, they, they, they become hyper-literalistic. Fundy-fundies. <laughs> it's strange. They accuse us of being uh, hyper-literalistic. But when it comes to fulfilled prophecy, it's got to be exactly there, word for word, or it doesn't apply. Okay. Now, going back to this <clears throat> suggestion that uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah may be the servant of the Lord. This is an interesting idea, <clears throat> and <clears throat> there is some truth to it, because as a prophet, whom the Lord describes as my servants, so all the prophets who are true prophets are servants of the Lord, in that sense, <clears throat> Jeremiah could be regarded as the servant of the Lord. But the one whom Isaiah is projecting is now being claimed by Jeremiah. 
In other words, he himself is placing himself in the mirror or in the reflection of the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53. And then the men of Anatoth try to do what to him? What, what do they do? They want to kill him. And what happens to the servant of the Lord, even in Isaiah 53? They're going to kill him. He's like, led like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep, be sure it's severe as his dumb, so he opened not his mouth. And what did they do to Jesus? They killed him, didn't they? Okay. And what about Jesus' own family? <clears throat> Did they believe in him? Did his brothers believe in him? No, John chapter 7, verse 5, they didn't believe in him. <clears throat> what did they do in Mark chapter 3, verse 31? Verse 21, rather. They tried to lock him away. They said he was out of his mind. They thought he had gone insane. What does John say in the prologue to his gospel? He came to his own and his own received him not. All right, so the pattern is being replayed. <clears throat> the plot then in this <clears throat> section of Jeremiah's prophetic narrative is a plot which is going to echo itself once again in the fullness of the history of redemption when somebody else is going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Someone else is going to be sandwiched in between those who are going to plot his death and wish him dead, try to kill him. Even those members of his own family who make colluding with that insofar as they don't believe in him and insofar as they want to lock him away. And what is the servant of the Lord going to do? He's going to do what Jeremiah does. Verse 11, verse 1 of chapter 12, Lord, plead my case. Lord, vindicate me. Lord, declare my righteousness. Justify me before my accusers. Jeremiah is going to plead with God to take away the reproach of him being led like a lamb to the slaughter. A reproach in which he is sandwiched unto death by the plot of his family members and brothers. And in that appeal for God to vindicate him, he places his hope in God's righteousness. The eschatological Jeremiah, the eschatological servant of the Lord, will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He will be plotted unto death by those who, who are his friends and those who are his own. And he will cry out for vindication. He will cry out for justification. He will cry out to be declared righteous. And he will be declared righteous by resurrection. That's the reason that Philip can say to the the, uh, Ethiopian eunuch that indeed the one he's reading about has been raised from the dead. He has been vindicated as the eschatological servant of the Lord. The mirror here, then, which we see from chapter 11, verse 18, to chapter 12, verse 6, 
is a mirror which is drawing Jeremiah into the drama of the fullness of the times, into the drama of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He appeals to the language of a lamb led to the slaughter because he's being conformed to that very same paradigm. He has, he faces the enmity and hostility of his own family and of his own uh, uh, townsfolks, just as Jesus faces the enmity of the Jews and even members of his own family. And then he is vindicated as he cries out for God to uh, to demonstrate his righteousness, demonstrate his innocence, demonstrate the fact that he is a true servant of the Lord and he has spoken the truth, even as he has spoken about the judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus does exactly the same thing and is vindicated by the resurrection justification on the third day. All right, this last unit then has an eschatological thrust. It's a narrative paradigm that draws Jeremiah into the drama of the unfolding plan of salvation, the unfolding history of redemption, what God is going to do in the fullness of time with the final Jeremiah, the final servant of the Lord, the final word of God, the final justification of his messenger in history. That's the reason that I see this third unit as a unit with its own integrity. And I break it away from the other two that we outlined above him. It's a narrative paradigm of its own right. Do you have any questions then about... uh, this uh, outline on the first page. In verses 1 to 17, which anticipate this antagonism between Jeremiah and the men of I think it sets the background for the, shall we say, the betrayal of uh, the covenant, the betrayal of uh, God's uh, divine lordship. <clears throat> I think that uh, the, the plot to kill him is related to his prophetic message. Uh, as we'll see in a moment, well, let's just comment on it. Notice what they say in verse 21. Notice that they say that they want to kill him, that he may die at their hands. They don't say, they don't say that uh, this is because of of uh, Josiah's reform. They don't say it's because Josiah purged out the idols. They don't charge him with something that suggests that he's upset the status quo. By his prophecy, they charge him with something that has to do with death because they want to kill him. They want to give him what he is saying is going to come to them. That means that this reaction takes place in the part of Jeremiah's career when he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem 
And last week when we looked at his temple sermon in chapter 7, we indicated that it likely dates from the time of Jehoiakim coming to the throne in 609 B.C. I think that these family members are reacting to that message which came out of the temple sermon, namely that the temple and Jerusalem were going to be destroyed sometime after Jehoiakim's reign, when, in fact, idolatry was reinstituted. And Jeremiah, even though he's talking about the idolatry, he's talking about the final denouement, the final judgment upon that idolatry, namely the death of the city, the death of the nation, and the death of Judah. Death for death, that's what they're dealing with. It's not idolatry per se. So the occasion, in my opinion, for out of which this section 18 to 12, 6 arises, is the rejection of Jeremiah's message of the 586 B.C. destruction, which is coming, but a message which originates not with the period of Josiah, the period in which he was called as a prophet, but arises in the period of Jehoiakim, when he himself was threatened by death, not only by the men of Anathoth, but he was threatened by death by Jehoiakim himself. Remember, he was cast down into a cistern while Jehoiakim was on the throne, chapter 36. We'll get to that eventually. Now, I can't prove that. I'm suggesting it on the basis of the language that is here. But the intriguing question is, why did his own native villagers, why did his own family members, why did those who knew him as he grew up, why did they want to put him to death? What was it about him that stuck in their craw? What was it about them that so radicalized them that they wanted to kill him? What? The fact that he was complaining about idolatry? No, because idolatry had already been purged. They could have complained all they wanted about Josiah's reform. That was long before. And in fact, Jehoiakim has put idols back in the temple. So it's not about idolatry that they're complaining about. Well, what are they complaining about? They're complaining about the fact that he says that this city is going to be destroyed. And they don't like that. In fact, they hate him for saying it. What do you mean? This nation is going to come collapse in death and murder and chaos and anarchy and so on. That's treason. That's treason. We'll throw you in jail. Do worse than that. We'll kill you. We've got the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord is here. You can understand why the men of Anatoth would think in those terms, particularly if they were thinking about the presumption of relying on the temple of the Lord. They were a priestly group, weren't they? He's raised from a family of priests. They know about the temple of the Lord. And they've also extrapolated the temple of the Lord to be an absolute bedrock presumption. The temple's here. God won't destroy us because the temple's here. If he destroys the temple, he's going to have to destroy the place where he dwells. He won't do that. We're safe and sound. We can do whatever we want. This, this presumptuous undercurrent in which um, it's, it's, it's the jarring jolt of that message that 
you're going to die. This city's going to die. This nation's going to die. No, no, Jeremiah, you're going to die. We're going to shut your mouth. We're going to stop you from saying that kind of stuff. We don't want to hear that. Don't talk to us about we're going to die. Denial. Denial. Sounds like a very contemporary matter, doesn't it? All right. So um, you understand what I'm doing here. I, I'm trying to fathom. You know, I'm, I'm talking more about this than I wanted at this point. I wanted to save that till later on, but it's fine. Uh, I'm trying to fathom. I'm trying to penetrate the psychology, the thinking of the men of Anathoth. What is it that moves them to want to kill their native son? What is it? What's driving their thinking? It's not Josiah's reform. They're not angry because Josiah cleansed the temple. In fact, that was a good for them because in cleansing the temple, they had more of a role in society as priests, even though they were priests in Anathoth. They're connected to that class, that club, you see. They're part of the privileged priestcraft of Judahite society. So cleansing the temple means it is more work for priests or there's more status for priests of the Lord. So all that's to the good. So they don't want to kill Jeremiah for that. He's one of them in that regard. Mm, Simpatico, brother. Me priest, you priest, right? So why is it that they want to put him to death? Because he breaks with the message of the establishment. That's why. Because he says, this city's going to be destroyed. God's going to bring his judgment upon this city for the evil that it has produced, for the evil that you have produced, for the evil that's all through this culture. God's going to bring his judgment upon this nation because of that. Stop that. We're going to lock you away. We're going to kill you. We're going to shut your mouth. We're going to silence your tongue. We don't want to hear that. I think it's because then of the inflammatory character of his uh, threat from Almighty God that the nation of Judah would be destroyed. That's what I think is motivating them. They want to kill him because he says that they, in effect, are going to be killed by the Babylonians. That's my case for solving the mystery. Uh, Whether you're persuaded or not, that's another matter, but... Uh, that that's uh, my suggestion for what's behind their plot. All right, um, let's take a look then at some of the individual verses, beginning with uh, verse two of chapter eleven. The covenant comes into play here in this section, uh, verses 1 to 8, as I pointed out in the outline. But this covenant presumption is very much like the temple presumption of chapter 7. Remember that phrase in chapter 7, verse 4, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. 
And our discussion last week of this presumptive, presumptive arrogance of thinking that Jerusalem or the city of the temple of God is impregnable and indestructible. The same thing is true with respect to the covenant. <clears throat> this culture is claiming the covenant as something upon which they can presume, something that they can rest and uh, be guaranteed security. And the covenant is the covenant at Sinai to which they are referring. But what's been going on in this city? What's been going on with these people with respect to the covenant? Let's turn back to chapter 7. Looking back at a chapter we looked at last week, chapter 7, verse 9. Jeremiah says, will you steal? Well, that's a violation of the covenant. It's a violation of one of the mandates or imperatives of the covenant. What mandate, what imperative, what commandment is that? What number is that, Marge? Think again. <laughs> Art, what number is it? I think it's eight. It's number eight. Okay, thou shalt not steal. Next is murder. What one's that one, Marge? I don't <laughs> you, you, you actually nailed it. Seven. No. Six. Six. That's number six. What is number seven since you brought it up? Yes, commit adultery is number seven, which is next in line. Swear falsely. What one's that one, Carrie? Number nine, correct. Offer sacrifices to Baal, walk after other guards. What one is that, Kay? One. One, okay. What else? Two. One and two. Very good. All right, now notice the order in which they're listed. Stealing is number eight. Murder is number six. Adultery is number seven. Then he goes to number nine. Then he goes to one and two. What's the matter? Didn't he know the order of the Ten Commandments? Yes, he knew the order of the Ten Commandments, but he is listing them for point of emphasis. And he arranges the particularly egregious social ones, stealing, murder, and adultery, by sandwiching murder between, sandwiching number seven, between eight and six. And he does it in a kind of backwards fashion, as if to start with what we might regard as the least serious, and then put the most serious in the middle, and then the sexual perversion on the other side. All right, so what's going on in this culture, back to chapter 11, verse 2, is covenant violation. And the presumption is that because we've got the covenant, we can steal, murder, commit adultery, uh, testify falsely, and worship other gods. In other words, <clears throat> free from the law, blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. It doesn't make any difference how I live. I got the covenant. Doesn't make any difference how I do. I'm baptized. I'm a covenant child. I can do whatever I please. I go to communion once a month. I can do whatever I please. I go to mass. I go to mass every week. I do whatever I please outside. As long as I go to confession and do my penance. This presumption of resting upon that issue or that institution or that idea as something that protects you. Baptism, fire insurance, 
The water of baptism puts out the fire. Does that mean that everybody baptized is regenerated? Well, there are some Dutch theologians that think that. Is that what the Bible says? I don't think so. But nonetheless, you see, this presumption eats its way into the church. And then those children who are baptized and taught that they're somehow safe because they're covenant children, they can act like rips. They can live like rakes. They can actually disobey every one of the commandments, steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and worship other gods like booze, like drugs, like sex, like hot cars, like lots of money, like lavish homes, like huge estates. You start to see a pattern, don't you? Well, because I'm a covenant child. And then, of course, when they get older, you won't find them in church anymore because they've learned that they don't have to do it. They don't need it. They've prospered without it. They're a covenant kid. All right, excuse me if I'm a little harsh here, but I've seen too much of it. And I've seen what it does to the church. When parents will not catechize their children and teach them that even though they've been given the privilege of the sign of the covenant, they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that they may be saved and stand up in front of the congregation and the elders and say so. And their life needs to measure up to that profession that they made. They cannot rest presuming upon the water of baptism. It has no indication that they are saved or not. It only indicates that they've been marked unto salvation when and where the Holy Spirit will work according to his good pleasure. And they are to seek that. And you as a parent are to teach that child to seek it. And you are to train them as to what they need to uh, to believe and to understand and how they have to live and what their disposition of their heart needs to be in order that they may indeed find the Lord Jesus Christ if they seek him with all their heart. You can't presume upon the church or the Sunday school or the Christian school doing that work for you. That's a vow that you took as a parent. It's your responsibility to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, the working is the Holy Spirit. I understand that. That's the sovereign good pleasure of God. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Both of them were covenant children. I understand that distinction. But it doesn't remove the responsibility from the parents to do what they are called to do in terms of training, catechizing, praying with, reading to, having family worship. That's a great privilege. It's a wonderful blessing. Why would you miss it? Duh! Oh, well, we're going to watch TV tonight. Duh! <laughs> you can't take 15 minutes out and have a little family worship and prayer time before the kids go off to bed. What's the matter with you? Can't take a little time on the Lord's Day, on the Sabbath day, and catechize your kids on your knee or on the chair opposite you? You take 20 minutes and talk to them? You can't do that? Huh? Well, time for a break. Time for me to shut up. <laughs> We're at verse 2, 
of chapter 11, and on your outline on uh, page 2, we're considering the matter of the covenant renewal under Josiah, and the reason that that's on your outline is to underscore the fact that the covenant was renewed when Josiah rededicated the temple. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 34. I've given you the passages there. Consequently, the covenant renewal was part of a celebration of joy and uh, looking back again to what God had done and pledging themselves to continue to walk in that light. It's not the only mention of the covenant at Sinai in the book of Jeremiah. It does occur here. It occurs other places in Jeremiah. I didn't list them all. But there are other covenants mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, including the Davidic covenant in chapter 33, God's covenant with the house of David. And then a covenant you know something about those of you that were with me for the Hebrews study. Hebrews chapter 8 has the longest continuous quotation of an Old Testament passage in the New Testament. That's a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the promise of a new covenant or an everlasting covenant. Please note that each of those covenants that are mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah are covenants of grace. They are emphatically divine initiative covenants. In each of those texts, God is the one who says, I will do thus and so. I will do thus and so. So it's a divine initiative, which is a gracious initiative. There is no covenant of works in this discussion or in this language. This is gracious disposition on God's part. In verse 4, we have the covenant formula. I want you to notice very careful what the language there is. The language of the covenant formulary is, you shall be my people, I will be your God. Is that a legal disposition? Is that a legal arrangement? You shall be my people, I shall be your God. Is that a legal matter? Ken? No, it's not. What kind of a matter is it? It's a gracious matter. Let's say it's not a legal relationship. It is a a relational relationship. Okay, it's a relation. It's not a legal disposition. It's a relational disposition. You shall be my people. I shall be your God. Or sometimes it's reversed. I shall be your God. You shall be my people. Notice the law may come. Uh, come after the fact to be a demonstration of this personal relational disposition. But the law is not what constitutes that relationship. Is it a legal arrangement that constitutes the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Is that, oh, uh, I just passed the law that you're going to be my son. Is that the way it works? You are now legally bound to me. Is that the way it works? Or is it a personal interrelationship? Yes, the son says, lo, I come to do thy will. I will do the law. But the law is subsequent to the relationship. The personal relationship is prior to the legal disposition. I'm not denying the legal arrangement that comes out of it, but it is not prior to the personal intimacy that is the foundation of it. We've got to understand that. You do not absolutize covenant with law. You can't do it. Once you do it, you're going to make it legalistic. 
I don't care whether it's Judaism. I don't care whether it's Pelagianism. I don't care whether it's some other error. But once you say that the ultimate category of covenant is law, you've got problems. You've got problems for the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. That's what you've got problems for. You understand that? All right. So, if this is a relational disposition, when God says, I will be your God, that's a personal matter. You will be my... That's a personal matter. It's a personal relationship. Now, walk according to my commandments. That's subsequent to the matter. Okay. Well, does the inclusion in the covenant... Depend or is it contingent upon listening and doing? In verse 4, God says, listen and do according to all that I command you. And then the covenant formula follows. You shall be my people, I shall be your God. So, in other words, God is saying, well, listen to my commandments and do my, do my obedience, do my uh, law or do my uh, precepts and commandments, and then I will be your God and you will be my people. Is that what's going on here? No, that's not what it says. Not what it says. <laughs> Go ahead, Art. Well, uh, you, I love you, whether you were saying you were quoting verse 8, but you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> well, verse 8 is very similar to verse 4, isn't it? <laughs> because verse 8 tells you why it can't be that obey my uh, voice and listen to my covenant it is not something that is possible for you because you've got what? Verse 8. They're not obeying. Verse 8. They're not obeying. Why? Verse 8. Evil hearts. They have an evil heart. They have an evil heart. What has to happen to this evil heart? Turn back to chapter 4, verse 4. Marge, I couldn't read your lips, but I'll, let's look at chapter 4, verse 4, and see if that's what was in your mind, or on your lips, or in your heart. Verse 8 of chapter 11 says that they won't obey and they don't listen because they have an evil heart. Well, what do they need? Marge? Circumcise your heart. In other words, you've got to cut off the evil from your heart. But how do I do that? Am I able to do that? Am I able to circumcise my heart? Marge? I said not, not you, yourself. No. So how does it happen? On the initiative of God. On the initiative of God. Who does it? Holy Spirit does it. What do we call it? Grace. Regeneration or rebirth. Okay. So, in other words, what's behind this language is the language of accusation. You're not obeying. You're not listening. You're not keeping my covenant. Why not? Because you're not regenerate. Because you have an evil heart. Well, what's the solution? Change your heart. Give me a heart of flesh. Take away my heart of stone. Circumcise my heart, O Lord. God commands me to circumcise my heart. I can't do that, Lord. Well, you can, Lord. So circumcise my heart, Lord. That's my prayer. Do what I can't do. Do for me what I am unable to do. 
Now, there's the real sinner's prayer, isn't it? That's the real sinner's prayer. Not that, oh, yes, uh, you know, say these words and accept Jesus here. But, Lord, give me what I can't get myself. Do for me what I can't do for myself. Change my heart. Change this evil heart. Change my wicked heart into a heart which listens and obeys. So the issue here is that the language sounds as if they're capable of doing something in order to earn the privilege of the covenant. But we know from the rest of Jeremiah and from the rest of the whole Bible that this is language which is, shall we say, phenomenal language. It's the language of the phenomena of what needs to occur. And what needs to occur is the evil, evil heart of unbelief needs to be taken away and in its place becomes a heart of fleshly belief and confidence and trust. Not resting upon oneself, but upon uh, the Lord God. Turn over to chapter 24, verse 7, just for a minute. We'll see a confirmation of this elsewhere in the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 24, verse 7. And notice how this verse lays it all out. I will give them a heart to know me. Who is going to give the heart? God says, I will give them a heart. I will take away that evil heart and I will give them a heart to know me for I am the Lord. And then look what he says. They will be my people and I will be their God. What goes before the covenant formulary? The new heart. The heart that God gives. The regenerate heart. The changed heart. The transformed heart. The psychology of the sinner in Calvinistic or Reformed theology is true to all we know about sinners, isn't it? Sinners can't change themselves. Why? Because they don't want to. They love their sin. They love to riot. They love to kill. They love to rape. They love to murder. They love to steal. They love to pick up. Dollar bills that don't belong to them that somebody threw out on the highway and keep them and stash them in their pockets. They love to break up windows on Wall Street. They love to smash businesses. They love to do this. We know, we know if, if, if our generation doesn't know what the state of a sinner's heart is, then you're not watching much TV. We know what the state of a sinner's heart is. And we know that because of the endemic nature of this stuff, it just keeps going on and keeps going on and keeps going on. It never changes. It's the same thing every day. We read these, we see these TV reports, we see these burning buildings, we see people's dead bodies and all this other kind of stuff. We see this all the time. And we say, well, surely the heart of man is evil and only evil continually. So what's it going to take to change it? New foreign policy? More food stamps? Higher taxes so they could have more programs, better schools, people higher teacher salaries. You know, they're only making one hundred and forty thousand dollars a year or something like that. Certainly that's not enough. Right. Okay, so in other words, none of none of this putting Band-Aids on the problem is going to is going to solve it. Calvinistic reform psychology has got the answer. The world doesn't want to hear the answer because the world doesn't really think that the sinner is bad. The world doesn't think that any of those people doing those bad things are bad by nature. They think they're good by nature. They think they're good people. They just went wrong somehow. They don't think they're evil. They don't think they're really wicked. They don't think they love their evil. Even Brevik in Norway, they don't think he's evil. They're going to do he said he was evil. He said he designed it. 
He talked about it. The only people they think are evil are people like Hitler. Well, then, why don't they think there are other Hitlers around? There's certainly other people around talking about genocide of, 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 of nations and ethnic groups, aren't there? All right, so the point is, Calvinism acknowledges the true state of the matter. A sinner has to be changed by God. A sinner has to be changed by a power outside himself. A sinner has to be changed by an almighty power. And that's the reason we preach the gospel. That's the reason we pay missionaries to go. That's the reason we support the mission of the church, because we know that this is the only way in which sinners are going to be changed. And when sinners are changed, then society is changed in measure. That's the way you change hearts and destinies and desires and delights. You change them by pleading for God to work by his spirit to regenerate hearts. And how many of you are praying that God will regenerate the hearts of Muslim people throughout the world? Even as the mid, mid uh, the, uh, the uh, Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship broadcasts in Arabic to these places where people are listening and turning to Christ. Because of radio programs they hear. Praise God for that. And pray his blessing upon that. For that's the only hope that we can offer that will substantially bring change. It is the hope that comes from a changed heart, changed nature. All right, so there's no presumption here in what Jeremiah is suggesting. And that chapter 24, verse 7 indicates exactly how the, the, the order of events occurs in the uh, transformation of a sinner's psychology into one who delights to know the Lord. I will give them a heart to know me, says the Lord. Verse 10, chapter 11, he mentions the house of Israel Why is he referring to that? Well, he's referring to the very same sin of idolatry that the house of Israel, namely the northern kingdom, practiced. And the the results of that was the crashing down of the Assyrian sword on the city of Samaria and the destruction of the northern kingdom and the carrying of the ten northern tribes into exile in which they disappeared. No, let's not have any of this British Israelism that the ten northern tribes are hidden somewhere in the world and they're going to revive at the millennium. That's nonsense. Ten northern tribes are gone. They've disappeared into the mixture of the gene pool of all those with whom they intermarried in the Mesopotamian crescent from the 8th century B.C. on down. All right, now, in verse 10, they have broken the covenant of the house of the Lord and they are uh, uh, turning God's house into a place of idolatry. Gone after other gods. We face again this issue in Jeremiah's career of what happened to Josiah's reforms. Josiah purged all the idols in the temple. He purged the groves and high places all over Judah. He even slew the the priests and the prophets of that movement so that they wouldn't have a voice any longer. 
So what is it that has caused these people to go back to their gods and idols when when Josiah had brought this thoroughgoing reformation? Just because the temple was purged didn't mean the hearts of the sinners were purged, does it? In other words, cleansing the temple was a ritualistic act. It was an external, outward, visible act. Did it had have any power to change the inner state of the hearts of those who had just days before worshipped at the shrines of those idols? No, just wiping them away, purging them out, just destroying them didn't change any hearts in and of itself. So when Josiah is dead... And when Jehoiakim brings idolatry back to Judah, that good old lifestyle that they had during the idol-worshipping days returns to Jerusalem and Judah. Why do I say those good old days? Well, the good old days when Manasseh established this, this which Josiah finally purged away, Manasseh established the worship of idols and all that went along with it, the whole cult. Culture, cultural phenomena that went along with the worship of idols. Prostitution in the temples, in the groves, cult prostitutes, sex sells like bananas. And so sexual prostitution was an, a powerful attraction. When Jehoiakim brings it back, it sells like hotcakes once again. Murdering their babies, burning them up in altars. It comes back with Jehoiakim. Manasseh had instu- instituted it. Josiah cleansed it. They bring it back. Why? Well, because that's something they want to do. They want to give to the God the thing that's most precious to them. Then the God will give to them something that is a blessing to them. So give them the baby. They murder. Manasseh is said to have filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. He was a mass murderer. We don't really know who he was killing, but nonetheless, the text of the scripture says that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Josiah purged that all away. And yet here it is back again. Chapter 7, which we just read. You are killing. You are murdering. Why? Because the reform couldn't change the heart. The ritualism, the externalism, the outwardism didn't get to the inside. There was nothing experiential for the most part in the life of these people of Judah, it did not take. It was like a bad inoculation. They're just going through the motions. When Josiah purged out the idols, they went to the temple without any idols and they went through the motions. The outward trappings of being religious, the formal external appearance of religiosity. It's going to come to an end in America. It is, because there's not going to be any fakes in the pews. Sooner or later, it's going to come to the point where you're not going to be able to be a Christian in America unless you really believe it. Because if you're a fake, if you're just simply playing the game, if you're simply ritualistic, you're going to, you're going to, <clears throat> you're going to, pat, you're, you're going to go over to the other side. You're not going to go to church when it becomes a crime. When you could go to jail for it, when you could be booed for it, 
We now even boo God in your hearing. We're on the brink of a cultural shift. You understand that? I hope you do. You're seeing it almost every day. You're on the brink of a cultural shift. Your Christianity is going to have to be true blue. Or you're going to be sorted out. We're going to start to wither the chaff from the floor. The book of Acts is not too far away from what we are going to be called to live through, I fear. Now, I'm not a prophet, but there are too many signs. There are too many movements. There's too much hostility. There's too much hatred. Real hatred against the Lord God and against his Christ and against the gospel, true gospel of his church. All right. Verse 11. They will not escape. Who tried to escape? King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, tried to escape. He snuck out the gate in the dark of Jerusalem and tried to get to the Jordan River, but he was captured, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar dealt with him. You'll notice in chapter 23, verse 24, God makes a a statement through Jeremiah that that you cannot escape from his eye. Whoops. Okay? Okay. All right, the the silence in verse 12. That's the silence of the dumb or mute gods and is also a reflection of their impotence. They're not going to be able to speak or to deliver in the time of the destruction of the city. The shameful things are the things that, in verse 13, the things that Manasseh brought into Jerusalem. I mentioned them. They're listed in 2 Kings chapter 21 including the use of the cult prostitutes with the Asherah, uh, the sacrifice of the children, the filling of Jerusalem with innocent blood. Uh, Verse 14 is virtually a duplicate of chapter 7, verse 16. You can compare the two verses and see the similarity. In verse 15, he talks about trying to... uh, they, They have done many vile deeds... And then he goes on to say, can sacrificial flesh take away from you your disaster? What's he referring to when he talks about this sacrificial flesh? This is the flesh of the sacrifice they would bring to the altar, like a burnt offering, etc. So the point here is that they're trying to cover over their sinful deeds by bringing a sacrifice. They think that the sacrifice will cover the egregious sin uh, of what they have, uh, uh, of what, what they have done. So, uh, this notion that all I have to do is bring an offering and I cover over my sins. I don't have to give up the sin. God just bring the offering and that suffices to hide it. No, it doesn't hide it because God looks upon the heart. And this connection of 
uh, evil deeds with the sacrificial flesh helps explain chapter 7, verse 21, which is a little bit obscure. So just make a note of that. You can use this verse in 11.15 to help explain a more obscure verse in chapter 7.21. Now in 17, God says that he has pronounced evil against those because of the evil of the house of Israel and Judah. In other words, God is giving evil for evil. Evil from God for the evil from Judah. This is a mirror paradigm uh, they had plotted to destroy the worship of God by their idolatry. Uh, God is going to destroy them. In other words, the attack on God's worship is attack on himself. It's a fearful thing to shake your fist in the face of Almighty God. It is a fearful thing. In verse 18, the deeds that are referred to there are the deeds of the plot that we talked about a little earlier. I don't think we need to discuss any more about the uh, lamb led to the slaughter image. You have the phrase Ebed Yahweh there on your outline. Uh, That phrase means servant of the Lord. So when we talk about Isaiah 53, the servant song, that is the servant of the Lord is the one that's led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's the phrase, that is the the way the phrase is transcribed in English from the Hebrew text. Ebed means servant, Yahweh, Lord, servant of the Lord. Now verse 20 is an appeal for God, uh, for Jeremiah to see God's vengeance upon those who have plotted against him. This appears to be vindictive. In other words, it looks as if Jeremiah is uh, asking for vindictive punishment. He's actually not doing so. He is a mirror of God. There's a mirror paradigm up there in verse 17. This is a mirror paradigm here. God's righteous vengeance is mirrored in the desire for God's righteous vengeance. How do I make that uh, equation or how do I make that uh, similar relation? Is it certain that God's vengeance will be reaped upon evildoers. If we believe the Bible, it is certain that evildoers will receive the vengeance of the Lord. The prophet then stands in the reflection of that mirror of God's character. He says, let me see thy vengeance on them, not because of some vindictive spirit, but because he wants to be in the mirror reflection of God's certain judgment upon evildoers. We will judge the angels. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. We will stand to judge the damned angels. We will stand with God as he passes sentence upon the damned and reprobate angels. We will rejoice in that judgment because it will be rejoicing in God's absolute justice and vengeance. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He's entering into the mirror reflection. This is not petty, vindictive, I'll get even with you stuff. This is Jeremiah saying, I want to be standing with the righteousness of God's coming judgment. All right, now, uh, skipping down to chapter 12, verse 1, where Jeremiah says, I would plead my case because you are righteous, Why is the way of the wicked prospered? This is the theme of Psalm 73. 
And in fact, the word ease, which appears here in verse 1, appears in Psalm 73, verse 12, in which the psalmist says the wicked always are at ease. This problem of uh, Jeremiah 12 and Psalm 73 is a problem of theodicy. It's also the problem of the book of Job. Theodicy, the justice or righteousness of God. The problem of the righteousness of God when the, pros- when the wicked seem to prosper. C.S. Lewis writes a book related to it when he talks about the problem of pain. He has to deal with the issue of the righteousness of God in the matter of suffering and pain. Incidentally, Lewis's book is a brilliant study in solving that problem, and so I commend it to you. The scriptures resolve this ultimately in terms of Christ's own enduring the uh, punishment uh, of the wicked that the wickedness that uh, our wickedness deserves. All right, now um, notice verse three here in chapter twelve. Notice that. Does anything jump out at you from that verse, particularly the fourth line there? See that phrase, sleep, sheep for the slaughter? Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter. What did they want to do to him? Slaughtering. Like a sheep, like a a lamb. Yes, they wanted to drag him off as a lamb to the slaughter, as he mentions there in verse 19. So what... What does he ask God to do them to treat them as as they wanted to treat him? Once again, it's a mirror reflection of God's own perfect justice. Uh, All right. Um, Verse 6, I'm skipping to the end now. Our time is running out. Verse 6, notice that God says, uh, Do not believe them, though they may say nice things to you. Flattery. The flattery of uh, those who knew him, even his family members, uh, the flattery which conceals the knife in the back. Beware the man who says, we have your back, and then turns and denounces you to your face. Beware of such a person. That person cannot be trusted. Beware of those who flatter you to gain their own purposes. And then betray your naive and unsuspecting trust and faith in them by bullying you, insulting you, undermining you so as to dominate and control you. Political power games in the church in which persons in eager to use other persons as stepstones to their own power, control, domination and influence are as common as common as the history of almost any church in the United States of America. The church is the place where power-hungry power brokers prey on people whom they can dominate and how they love to turn the screws on those people, how they love to assert their own power and puff out their chests not only with their money and their prestige, but also with their ability to put you in their place and keep you under their thumb. It is one of the horrific and egregious sins of the church, but 
It is as evil in the church today as it was in Jeremiah's day with his, pe- with his family flattering him for the sake of controlling him. Beware when all people speak well of you. Watch, watch for the knife that's hidden somewhere. Now, we don't have time to go into the excursus, but very briefly, this is an attempt to look at a word in chapter 11, verse 9, named the word conspiracy, which, according to verse 10 of chapter 11, could be just generic disobedience and rebellion, that is, disobedience of God's will. I understand that. I recognize that. But the Hebrew word here for conspiracy which is kesher, is also a word which appears in the Old Testament referring to a rebellion, a political rebellion by way of a coup, assassinating a previous leader. Shalom, king of Israel in the northern kingdom, assassinated Zechariah to take the throne. Hoshea, the last king of the northern kingdom of Israel, assassinated his predecessor, Pekah, in order to take the throne. And in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, the king of Assyria finds conspiracy in Hoshea. In other words, he finds rebellion in him. Is this word then in Jeremiah 11.9 referring to conspiracy in terms of a rebellion? And if this is the age of Jehoiakim, who would Jehoiakim be rebelling against? From 609 to 605, when Jehoiakim was put on the throne of Judah by Pharaoh Necho, the Egyptian king, he submitted to Egypt. But in 605, Nebuchadnezzar chased Necho back from Carchemish towards Egypt. The second time Necho had gone up to Carchemish, second time he'd faced Nebuchadnezzar. First time in 609, Nebuchadnezzar didn't chase him down through Palestine. Second time he did. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar pursues Necho, and he places Jehoiakim under his vassalage. In other words, now Jehoiakim has to pay Babylon. He doesn't have to pay Egypt. Well, then Jehoiakim, according to 2 Kings 24, verse 1, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, against Babylon. Is it possible that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in order to go back to Egypt? In other words, play a foreign policy game of favorites in which he tries to lighten up his obligation of paying taxes to the Babylonian emperor and pay a lesser amount to Egypt if he agrees to be buddies with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians see, well, this would give us another buffer state between ourselves and the Babylonian empire. So, yeah, we're, we're open to this discussion. I'm only suggesting this is a possibility. Why am I doing that? You will notice that when Jehoiakim dies... The Bible says, page four of your outline, the Bible says that he received a donkey's burial. That's Jeremiah 22, 18 and 19. His body was thrown out of the gate of Jerusalem and exposed to the elements. In other words, his body was thrown to the dogs, so to speak. Chapter 36, verse 30. There are two places in the book of Jeremiah where Jehoiakim is, is said to have received a dishonorable burial. Why? In 597 B.C. when he died, why was he given a dishonorable burial? Why was he not buried with his fathers? Even though he was a bad king, even the bad kings in Judah got buried with their fathers, right? Why wasn't he? 
Is it possible that he conspired against Babylon by playing footsie with Egypt? And as a result, there were a group of people in Jerusalem that assassinated him because they didn't want to have to deal with Babylon coming down on their necks again because he had gone playing games with the Egyptians. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar did come down on their necks. Did he come down on their necks because of an incitement to, to rebellion on the part of Jehoiakim and a betrayal of his alliance by going off to the Egyptians? Ezekiel in chapter 17 talks about this. He talks about the fact that the army of Egypt won't come out. In fact, in 2 Kings 24, the text goes on to say that after Jehoiakim died, the king of Egypt did not come forth out of his land anymore. Does that imply that the king of Egypt was on his way out of his land before Jehoiakim died? Because Jehoiakim had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and played games by trying to bring Egypt into the domain of the the, uh, power of the, the nation of Judah. I can only suggest that this may be a possibility for why Jehoiakim received such an ignominious and dishonorable burial, as well as death. But the history of Judah and Israel playing footsie with Egypt from the time of the destruction of the northern kingdom down to the time of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, it's recorded by by, uh, Ezekiel and by Jeremiah, and it raises the intriguing suggestion that this word here in chapter 11, verse 9, refers to a political conspiracy on the part of King Jehoiakim to throw off Nebuchadnezzar and to place his flag under the umbrella of Egypt. Possibility. I'm suggesting it as a consideration. The consideration solves some issues. It raised some other problems. But that's all I have time to say about it tonight because we've reached the end of our time. Do you have any questions? I'm happy to take questions, uh, you know, off the mic or whatever, uh, if you want to stay and and ask some things. But uh, we're at the end of our time. So at any rate, chapter 13 next week, we go to the next kind of biographical incident in Jeremiah's career, which is this linen waistband.